Hello, welcome everyone and welcome to Blogging and Theology. Today I am delighted to talk again to Imran Muller. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Good to see you back. Uh, for those who don't remember, Imran studies history at the University of Cambridge. He has uh, written for the, the critic, uh, conservative home, athwart, Middle East Eye and Traversing Tradition, amongst others. On Saturday, the 14th of January, 2023, Prince Mukharram Jar, the titular Nizam of Hyderabad, died in Istanbul at the age of 89. Few people know that he was nominated caliph by the last Ottoman caliph. Wow. In a, a recently uh, published article on the popular website Middle East Eye, Imran tells the fascinating story which takes us from uh, Istanbul to the French Riviera and Hyderabad. So would you like to tell us the story, Imran? Yes, so it's an extraordinary story, I think. Uh, it's not a secret, but it's very little known. And so if you read any popular history of the Ottoman Empire, um, if you watch any documentary on the Ottomans or on the Caliphate, the Khilafah, then you're most likely not going to come across this story because uh, people generally tend not to look at it. They end the story with the abolition of the Khilafah, of the Caliphate, and then sort of they leave it at that and they don't look at what, uh, what happened afterwards. And it's a remarkable event. We have Republicans in Istanbul. We have a former caliph on the French Riviera. And we have the world's richest man in India. And after the First World War, they all became embroiled in this extraordinary story. So I think we should begin with uh, the 3rd of March, 1924. So next year, it will be the 100th year anniversary um, of when the young Republic of Turkey abolished the Ottoman Caliphate. And this was obviously cataclysmic because uh, to be caliph was to claim the loyalty of the world's Muslims. Now, the position had never been undisputed. Mm. But after this, the Muslim world, which was largely under the yoke of European imperialism, was left leaderless. So why was it done? The move was part of the nation building project pursued by the government of Turkey, which was, uh, of course, a secularist government led by Mustafa Kemal. It was they who had fought European occupation. They would founded the nation out of the ruins of the collapsed Ottoman Empire. And the Kemalists believed that to fashion modern Turkey, they had to essentially annihilate all serious remnants of the old order, which had been Ottoman and Islamic. So in November 1922, the Grand National Assembly of Turkey abolished the Ottoman Sultanate and they deposed Sultan Mehmet. And then a prince called uh, Abdul Majid, who had never been involved in the running of the empire, was installed as a puppet figure and he became Caliph Abdul Majid II. And the idea was he'd keep a low profile in the Dolmabachi Palace on the shores of the Bosphorus and he'd basically stay hidden away and not involve himself in public affairs. Unfortunately for the government, Abdul Majid had no intention of doing anything of the sort. <laughs> He was a, he was an impressive man in his own right. He was a, a talented pianist. He was a cellist, a calligrapher, a painter, 
Um, he wasn't a timid pushover. And so he rode his white horse through the streets like the sultans of old in regal fashion. He showed up at the Hagia Sophia Mosque for the Friday prayer. He appeared before his adoring crowds and he even hosted grand receptions in his palace. And so he insisted on behaving basically as though the Ottoman Empire still existed. Provocation to Ataturk actually to see this that this caliph on a white horse going to Hagia Sophia, presumably on Friday for Juma prayers when the, the leaders yes. of the Muslims, the Imam would have turned up. So that was quite a provocation to Ataturk, I would have thought. Yes, for the government, this was intolerable. And um I think that was why anti-monarchical sentiment, which was very strong um among the government developed into a call to do away with the caliphate once and for all but at this at the same time in india the caliphate movement or the khilafat movement was raising a resounding clamor in support of abdul majid so the the caliphate movement it had been established in 1919 by a coalition of indian muslims and the aim was basically to pressure the british empire into protecting the office of the caliphate and the British were obviously concerned by this. They saw the movement as a potential problem for their authority because uh, the colonial project was about engineering Islam to be conducive to British interests. So well, I've, British... I've got to pause you there. It's too, it's too much of a temptation. Engineering Islam to serve British interests. Hmm. hasn't changed very much, has it? No, it's, it's the, there's a book by uh, Joseph Massad called uh, Islam in Liberalism, and he, illustrate, he il illustrates this point very well. He takes us all the way from the late 19th century through this period uh, until the present day to show how that, that is the liberal project, basically. Yeah. Um, Sorry, it was very juicy. Uh, I couldn't resist. Carry on, yeah. please. <laughs> and so, so uh, British colonialism was naturally, it felt threatened by the prospect of some kind of global Islamic kinship that could transcend states and transcend empires. It wasn't happy about that. And uh, even more anxiety inducing for British officials was the fact that the caliphate movement became a mass mobilization of Indians across religious lines. So Mahatma Gandhi and other prominent nationalists seized the day and joined in. And they basically uh, presented the movement as a glorious show of unity, Hindu Muslim unity against Britain. The leader, you go. It's very naughty of me. I apologize. You just no, said something no. I really didn't expect to ever hear. You're saying Mahatma Gandhi. Now, he was not a Muslim, obviously. No, no. <laughs> a Hindu, perhaps. Um, so you're saying there was Hindu-Muslim collaboration, alliance together in a, a highly political movement in India. I mean, the contrast today is just astonishing without getting sidetracked into all that, of course. I just, just want to emphasize what you've just said as a remarkable, and this is the historic reality of Muslim uh, Hindu relations, one of cooperation and even collaboration on important political matters. Yes, and of course that was uh, to change uh, in future years with the the Muslim League's uh, demand for Pakistan and with the sort of um, uh, the fall apart of the Congress Party, of Muslims in the Congress Party. But the Congress Party, which was the mainstream independence movement, um, its senior leaders, including Gandhi, uh, supported uh, the caliphate movement. And one of the leaders of the caliphate movement was uh, Maulana Abul Kalam Azad, who then went on to be president of the Congress Party. And he opposed uh, partition famously. He served in government of independent India. So th this movement is sort of very important uh, in the sense that the individuals involved in it then went on to do lots of sort of very significant things. But the leader of the movement was Maulana Shokat Ali, 
and he was a, an anglicized former civil servant, um, former student at Aligarh University, uh, which was a kind of um, English style modernist university. But he dramatically transformed himself into a, a daring nationalist. And in World War One, he wrote a series of seditious articles supporting the Ottoman Empire. And so unsurprisingly, the British imprisoned him. Uh, but that did nothing to hurt his career. In 1919, while he was in jail, he won the election and, and became president of the caliphate movement. Wow. And his mother, um, B. Umma, she was called, also became a significant uh, figure in the movement and she addressed large meetings around the country. So very interesting stuff. But the mobilization enjoyed a lot of success basically in helping the anti-colonial struggle. But then mm -hmm. when Turkey won its independence and uh, Mustafa Kemal uh, abolish the Ottoman Sultanate, the Caliphate movement was left in a complicated position. Mm. They didn't really know what was going to happen. So in November 1923, the movement and its prominent allies sent a letter to the Prime Minister of Turkey and basically urging him to give the Caliphate its due prominence as a focal point of solidarity for the world's Muslims. And the next month, the Jamiat Ulamai Hind, which is a congregation of Indian Islamic scholars still around today, still very significant, suggested that scholars from around the Muslim world should convene to discuss the status of the Caliphate. Now, these global Muslim ambitions clash dramatically with the Kemalist vision of secular nation building. So the Turkish government um, condemned attempted foreign intervention, they called it, and they used the caliphate movement as well as claims of a, a pro-Ottoman monarchist plot in Turkey as a pretext to abolish the caliphate in March 1924. For the caliphate's movements leaders, uh, the, you know, this was an unexpected and devastating development. But this uh, actually backfired, wasn't it? So you had this uh, great movement, uh, people like Gandhi joining in India and moving ahead and so on. And then the whole thing just so freaked out Ataturk, I guess, is sort of obviously as an existential threat to his new regime of militant secularism. I mean, I've been to Istanbul, I remember hearing, you know, he drew a lot from France, French lassite, this kind of very hardline secularist ethos and political system, uh, but it backfired and it had the opposite consequence to the intended outcome, which was its, you know, repression, abolition completely. Extraordinary. Yes, and you're you're right. The Kemalist government then went on to uh, uh, to change to a Latin alphabet. They banned mm. various forms of uh, Islamic clothing. They uh, outlawed the fez. The fez, of course, famously, this red hat was banned uh, in in yeah. Turkey. Yeah. Indeed, and they they uh, sort of made it so that the call to prayer had to be in Turkish, not Arabic. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, but the, for the royal family, now that the caliphate was abolished, they were expelled from Istanbul uh, unceremoniously. They were put on the Orient Express and they ended up in Switzerland uh, where they didn't have any money. Um, and there's a report from the Daily Mail at the time, uh, which uh, said that the ex-caliph spends his days in prayer, painting and composing music. Eventually, the family moved to the south of France and financially they weren't in a good place. And it was from an unexpected place that monetary assistance would come. And that was Hyderabad. Mm. Hyderabad, um, it, it was a princely state in southern India, the size of Italy. So very big, very significant. And it was under indirect British control. It was well, indirect. You mean Britain didn't rule it directly. So you mean that they were the power behind the... 
the facade, whatever that was. Uh, yes, know. the the princely states in India were sort of outside of British India proper, so they weren't administered directly by Britain, but they were controlled ultimately by Britain through these sort of puppet rulers who did have a measure of autonomy, but not not sort of total. Uh, autonomy but so Hyderabad was governed by the Muslim Asaf Jah dynasty and this was a dynasty which had risen to power under the Mughal Empire and Hyderabad's ruler the seventh Nizam the Nizam was the ruler of Hyderabad he was called uh, Usman Ali Khan and he was generally thought to be the world's richest man so he employed 12,000 palace servants uh, including wow. 3,000 North African bodyguards. He had a harem with over 80 concubines. He used a 50 million pound diamond as a paperweight. Um, he drove around in a Rolls Royce and he, he set up his own whiskey distillery as well. Uh, a Muslim ruler set up his own whiskey distillery as well as being having goodness knows how many servants and whatnot. Gosh, okay, interesting. Yeah, and um, Hyderabad was it existed under the watchful and uh, you could say often concerned eye of the British <laughs> Empire as a, an almost implausible relic of a bygone era. So it was a sort of last vestige of the Mughal past and the extravagance of elite life there was legendary. Uh, Hyderabad's palaces were drenched with opulence and uh, an old fashioned Indo-Islamic grandeur. Uh, the Nizam procured a uh, antique illuminated copies of the Quran, lots of very significant Islamic art. He was a talented poet, so he would roam the, the perfumed rooms of his palace, uh, composing verse in Persian and Urdu. He had a uh, Kowali masters uh, uh, in the royal court, you know, performing renditions of mystical poetry. And uh, there's a quote from one visitor to the Nizam's court, which I'll just read you. Uh, and it says, the effete, the supercilious, the curious, the coarse, the delicate, the pleasure-loving and effeminate all passed through uh, the court of Hyderabad. And uh, the Nizam hosted grand dinners uh, with, you can imagine what the food was like. Uh, there mm. were garden parties with a 60-piece string orchestra. Um, the Nizam had his own jazz band as well, uh, which he led, in, he, led, he led it in performing his favourite song, uh, I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles. Uh, hang on, so, hang on. All that money, all that refinement, his favourite song was I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles. Yeah. Oh, what a waste. Sorry. <laughs> well, so I'm going to get onto that. He's often basically stereotyped as being kind of uh, uh, really decadent and then at the same time quite miserly. So later in his life, he would sort of always wear the same clothes and he, he was once furious with a, uh, someone for trying to charge him too much for ice cream. Uh, so he, he's stereotyped as being miserly, but I think this is uh, basically unfair. His reign saw relatively good governance compared with British India. He was enormously popular with his people, so he set up India's first Urdu university. He made primary education free for everyone. Uh, there were railways built, power stations. They redeveloped slums into housing colonies, and uh, dams were built as well. So Hyderabad had a reliable supply of drinking water which was extremely rare in the Indian subcontinent. Um, and then there's also the point of religious tolerance. The Nizam emphasized religious pluralism to his mainly Hindu subjects. So he, he would actually patronize um, mosques and 
Sufi shrines, but also temples and churches and gurdwaras. And he declared, Muslims and Hindus are my two eyes. And uh, of course, uh, Hyderabad was a majority Hindu state. Um, and despite being stereotyped as miserly, he, he, he used goods that were only produced in Hyderabad. So he would buy items from auctions just to help struggling families. He chain smoked cigarettes uh, from sort of a local uh, place just to help the industry there. And so he felt guilty for not supporting the Ottoman Empire before its collapse and recognizing the importance of the now vanished caliphate. He wanted to help the former caliph. Uh, and so he proposed giving Abdul Majid and his household 300 pounds a, a month. And the exiled Ottomans uh, sort of living on, on Hyderabadi money ended up in a, a nice 19th century villa overlooking Nice. Um, and the, the former caliph was often sighted on the beach carrying a parasol. Uh, elsewhere, scheming was afoot. Molana Shokat Ali, who uh, we heard about, he led the caliphate movement. He was uh, now working with a man called Marmaduke Pictal, who was uh, an Englishman employed by the Nizam to translate the Quran into English. And behind closed doors, they... I've got to pause you there. It's such an important thing that to the yeah. Pictal translation of the Quran, of course, into English is a very famous world-famous English yeah. translation, uh, you know, from the 19th century or whatever. I mean, it might not be used much today, but hugely important translation by a Muslim convert to Islam, obviously an Englishman. Uh, so I just wanted to stress the significance of that. Yeah, And, and Pickthor was a very significant uh, character. He'd uh, so been involved in the freedom struggle. Then he'd moved to Hyderabad. He produced a, a journal called Islamic Culture, um, and he was sort of well-liked by the Nizam. So uh, together with uh, Molana Shokat Ali, they plotted basically to bring together the House of Usman, the Ottoman dynasty, and the Asafjar dynasty that ruled Hyderabad. Uh, the Nizam wouldn't have dreamed of adopting the title of Caliph himself because he, he needed legitimacy. The British wouldn't countenance the idea. So their plan centered on having the Nizam's son Azam Jah, who was a, a young man who'd been educated at Harrow in Cambridge in England, uh, marry the former caliph's daughter, uh, the princess Duru Shevar. And for good measure, they also proposed marrying her cousin, uh, Nilufar, to a younger son of the Nizam called Muazzam Jah. So um, a potential obstacle to the plan, though, was that three other rulers also wanted to marry members of their dynasties to those two girls, uh, the King of Egypt, King Faisal of Iraq, and the Shah of Persia. And so there was a bidding war. But for Abdul Majid, the former caliph, uh, the Nizam's generosity in supporting his family uh, financially was too important to ignore. Yeah. So in the summer of 1931, uh, the Nizam's representatives uh, met Abdul Majid in London to negotiate negotiate the dowry. Uh, the talks were nearly derailed over arguments, uh, but eventually the marriage was arranged. Uh, the two princes, Azam and Muazzam Jah, um, arrived at a luxurious hotel in Nice. They signed the marriage contract at uh, the Palais uh, Carabasel, uh, which was also in Nice. And the Nizam sent Abdul Majid a, a message saying, and I quote, an alliance has been established between the two ancient and historic dynasties, which it is hoped has prospects of a bright future. Uh, mm -hmm. And Azam Jah, the eldest son who had married Princess Duru Shevar, uh, he had no interest in becoming the next Nizam. And the Nizam, um, Usman Ali Khan, was happy with this. He wanted a child of both the Asaf Jah and Ottoman dynasties, his grandson as his heir. So the 
so married couples arrived in India. Uh, the British were very concerned and the overworked British resident in Hyderabad wrote to the Viceroy of an open revival of the scheme to bring the Caliphate to Hyderabad. And uh, that's what it looked like. Um, Molana Shokat Ali went to Palestine that very same year for the World Islamic Congress, which he had organised with the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. And he was under close British surveillance at the time. And his plan was to use this conference to mobilise support from across the Muslim world for basically reviving uh, the institution of the caliphate. And British spies reported it as his scheme for a pan-Islamic federation. Uh, but this failed. Uh, by all accounts, there was internal discord and not everyone agreed uh, at the conference that the Ottomans should be supported as leaders of the Muslims. You know, others, they wanted various other leaders uh, uh, to, to, to be the next caliph. And in any case, there was no Muslim power that could really claim enough strength to challenge colonial designs. So it sort of, it came to nothing in the end. Uh, but amid all this, the newly married couples were settling into their new lives. Um, and you can imagine uh, Hyderabad was nothing like Istanbul. It was words apart, worlds apart from the French Riviera. Um, and yet the two uh, young women adapted th to the situation remarkably well. So Princess Duru Shevar learned to speak fluent Urdu. She became wow. a very prominent figure in Hyderabad. She uh, patronized hospitals. She set up charities. She even set up a junior college for girls. And uh, her cousin, Nilufar became a fashion icon and she was known for merging European and Indian styles in her clothing and the two young women basically became celebrities um, and then in late 1933 came the moment that everyone had been waiting for which was that Princess Duru Shevar gave birth to a son and he was Mukaram Ja who of oh. course has just uh, passed away um, and he was the result of the union between the caliphal family and the richest household in the Muslim world. His grandfather on his paternal side was the Nizam of Hyderabad. On the maternal side, it was uh, the former caliph, Abdul Majid II. Um, and he was poised to be the heir, the next Nizam and leader of the world's Muslims. So mm. a historian called John Zubrichiki um, has written in his book called The Last Nizam. It's a very good book. I, I highly recommend it. Um, that British officials were shocked when they discovered in Abdul Majid's will, uh, Abdul Majid finally, uh, he passed away in 1944, uh, that Abdul Majid had nominated Mukarram Jah, his grandson, to be the next caliph. And this was only natural because Abdul Majid had no other successors. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, can you just explain why the British were so uh, disturbed, uh, anxious about the, the, the birth of Mukarram Jah? What, you know, why, why was this a problem? potentially for them? Well, the interesting thing is, is that it wasn't as much of a problem for them as if the Nizam had tried to sort of claim the caliphate on the basis of the union, which obviously wasn't feasible. And they would have uh, presumably put a stop to that. Um, but what happened here is that they thought, well, this is a situation to watch. Uh, right now, at least, uh, Hyderabad is sort of um, under our control, you know, claiming to be the caliph meant nothing substantively without political power. Now, the Nizam, Osman Ali Khan, he'd always believed that he should be treated as an equal by the British. So they saw him, they saw him as fairly uppity, uh, but they, they were willing to sort of deal with that situation and just keep an eye on it. 
And in any case, none of this was to be because uh, India was sort of coming closer to independence. And it wasn't India's princes that were shaping the political scene. It was the forces of uh, democratization represented by the Congress party. Um, So Molana Shokat Ali, he went on to be a major player in Indian Muslim politics. Uh, In 1936, he joined the Muslim League. He became a close ally of Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was uh, styling himself leader of India's Muslims at that time. And uh, obviously, in 1940, uh, the Muslim League uh, declared their demand for an independent Muslim state, Pakistan. Um, So Molana Shokat Ali went on to be involved in the Pakistan movement, although he 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 passed away before the idea really came to fruition. So he he died in um, 1938, I believe. Uh, but that just shows that the caliphate movement had this sort of interesting afterlife where its leaders went on to do some very significant things. And so, so there's that link there with the creation of Pakistan. But the uh, in terms of Hyderabad, well, uh, India sort of went down this road which looked like it would end up at partition. Um, all sides tried to reach a kind of compromise um, where they could have an Indian federation with strong regional autonomy and uh, sort of virtual independence for Muslim regions. Uh, so, so it was basically uh, the proposed idea was something that wouldn't be like a normal nation state. The mm-hmm. centre would be weak and uh, would control things like defence, military um, and Muslim majority provinces would have their own sort of uh, independence, um, as would other provinces. But this whole thing fell apart uh, in 1946. And by 1947, India was set for an actual partition, so for uh, Pakistan to be created. So what was going to happen to Hyderabad? Uh, no one wanted the uh, sort of politics to disrupt their way of life. The Nizam had no intentions of giving up his power. And he oh. actually saw this as sort of a perfect moment to make Hyderabad uh, sovereign and autonomous. So he wanted an independent Hyderabad and he wanted his heir, Mukarram Jah, ultimately to succeed him upon his death to be a great and powerful leader and caliph of the world's Muslims because Hyderabad we should remember it had a large economy it was the size of Italy and so um, its leaders thought that it could be very significant in the Muslim world essentially and that would sort of be a perfect time for uh, Mukarram Jah to sort of claim the mantle of caliph and it would have legitimacy because of uh, the Ottoman connection his grandfather and of course uh, the wealth and the power would also sort of give it that added kind of relevance uh, it, it means nothing to say I'm the uh, caliph if no one supports you and yeah. you don't have any uh, political power um, and of course, uh, these ambitions were never to be. When India and Pakistan won their independence, uh, Hyderabad status was precarious. And uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, now the leader of Pakistan, he advised the Nizam not to submit to India. And he say, he warned the British Viceroy that if Congress tries to move against Hyderabad, every Muslim in the Indian subcontinent is going to rise up, which was... Uh, Uh, sort of some posturing there that emboldened the authorities in Hyderabad. Um, But the Indian government was never going to allow this massive uh, Muslim-ruled state with a Hindu majority to be uh, sort of in the middle of Indian territory. 
it made absolutely no sense. They were never going to sort of tolerate it. Um, so in uh, 1948, autumn 1948, uh, Jinnah uh, sadly died and chaos erupted in Pakistan. And in that position, Pakistan was unable to sort of do any military intervention on Hyderabad's behalf. And so less than two days later, the Indian army invaded Hyderabad and the state was annexed to India. Now, this was an absolutely devastating event because uh, independent reports suggest at least tens of thousands of Muslims died in the invasion. Indian army officers have been accused of uh, committing war crimes privately when Prime Minister Nehru of India uh, heard about how many Muslims were killed. He was absolutely horrified and he, he thought it staggered the imagination. That was the, the phrase used because uh, these were atrocities being committed on the ground rather than being sort of directed by the government. But it was an absolutely sort of awful invasion. And uh, Hyderabad, of course, would never be the same. Uh, immense loss of life. So many people were left homeless and became refugees. And um, the Nizam and that dynasty lost all its real power so princess uh Duru Shabar, sorry hyderabad today is part of india obviously yeah uh, right okay yeah so it's incorporated then into um the nation state of india uh, and meanwhile princess uh, Duru Shabar, uh she went to london with her two sons including mukaram jar and she lived in london's savoy hotel for the next two years mukaram jar he went to harrow and then to cambridge like his father had done um and uh, and then usman ali khan the seventh nizam uh, passed away in 1967 and that was when Mukaram Jah became the new Nizam. But it was just a, a title at that point. He had no power. And what's more, he had a legally disputed inheritance, so a vast inheritance, as, as we know, which was uh, claimed by thousands of people. So, so this wasn't a good situation for him. And then in 1974, the Indian government abolished the Nizam's title and uh, sort of placed loads of new taxes and land acts on him. And so in the end, the dynasty had to sell off uh, a significant amount of their property and um Jah was only the the titular nizam but sort of not recognized as such there was no title recognized anymore in india and right. um he then uh he moved to australia uh sort of defying all expectations and he he had a small sheep farm there and he enjoyed driving bulldozers um, and now he li uh, he he moved then you to couldn't make, you couldn't make this up could you? No. first of all the family moved to the riviera of all places perhaps more understandable but then to become a sheep herder in the australian outback it's not obvious not obvious that one would do that yes driving bulldozers which bulldozers, you, you can imagine it was a, it must have been such an awful uh, environment over there in hyderabad that he just wanted to get away yeah. um, and he, he he then lived for the rest of his life in a small apartment in Istanbul. And uh, the locals obviously would have had no idea that, that this man was um, sort of nominated to be caliph by Abdul Majid II. Um, and he, he that was where he passed away in Istanbul. But he always kept that connection to mm. Hyderabad through charitable initiatives. And uh, they were doing sort of renovations of the palaces once they'd finally uh, sort of got a hold of them again and uh he had a son um prince azmat ah, point of this video of course is the is the son this is the, the point really and his significance today so sorry yes 
So Osmut Jha um, is a British filmmaker. He's a filmmaker. He's worked with um, uh, uh, David, uh, no, Richard Attenborough. Sorry, not, not David Attenborough. And he's, David Attenborough film. That means he'll be yeah. living in the jungle or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Richard Attenborough and uh, Steven Spielberg. So two very big yes. directors. So he's, yeah. a, he's, a, he's a professional filmmaker, but he mm. has also been very involved in trying to restore Hyderabad's uh, cultural heritage. Uh, and he was actually in Hyderabad um, when his uh, father Mukaram Jar uh, tragically uh, passed away last week. And Mukaram Jar was uh, his his body was taken to Hyderabad and he was buried there. And just two days ago, Usmat Jar had his coronation, um, and he is now the ninth Nizam of Hyderabad. And of course, uh, he is the man with uh, probably the strongest legal claim to the title of caliph because mm. his father was the the would-be caliph as it were so so um but of course he's they they've shown no uh, indication of wanting to claim that title and uh why should they really because it doesn't it doesn't mean anything without uh sort of political power or sovereignty mm. okay well that's fascinating so the, the uh mukaram jar uh few people know us at the beginning he was nominated caliph by the last Ottoman caliph of all things. Um, the, thing, the thing is, I mean, some people, many people might say that he was simply a, a bygone relic from the past with no actual power, as you have rightly indicated, you know, the symbol that the power is meaningless. So what is the significance of his passing for Muslims today? Why should we even talk about him? What, what, why, why bother to be crude? I mean, what, what's the significance? Well, when a figure like this passes away, it's sort of, it's the end of a bygone era in a way mm. so it's, it's significant just for that reason but it's also it is tempting to see this as no more like you say as no more than uh, the story of the downfall of a wealthy elite who mm. were very sad about the loss of their extreme privilege and prestige but we could say well it also meant the crumbling of the last vestige of a sophisticated and tolerant Indo-Islamic culture uh, which mm. sort of shaped the Muslim world in a very significant way and it's uh, its worldview and uh, the beauty there it was important not just to a small nobility but to a whole people uh, to uh, the Muslims of India and in India today its very memory is threatened with annihilation this is India wow. where um, historic mosques um, are demolished where street names and city names that are Islamic are being changed it's uh, it's the attempted annihilation of the memory of this civilization and so it's very important to preserve sort of the memory of this story uh, which has sort of sadly been largely forgotten and we might also note that what made this failed uh, plan so extraordinary was that its key players so people like uh, Caliph Abdul Majid II, uh, Maulana Shokat Ali and Nizam Usman Ali Khan, they all opposed the modern nationalism that was ascendant at the time. So they dreamt of, uh, of Muslim autonomy, um, they dreamt of a Muslim solidarity that could shatter geographical boundaries and that dream has never truly disappeared and of course it's it's present in that union between um the ottomans sort of a very long way away and uh india and it, it's transnational islamic uh solidarity that sort of cuts across national boundaries 
Okay, I'll just focus for a second if we can. Uh, why is the role or office of caliph important in Islam? And what exactly is it? Because you mentioned, you know, technically he was, but there was no political power. But nevertheless, what is it? What are we talking about here for those who are not familiar with the idea? So the caliphate uh, is an institution that began right after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, uh, peace be upon him. Um, and the first caliph was Abu Bakr, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, uh, the mm. companion of the Prophet. Um, and then the caliphate, it, to be caliph really meant to be successor of the prophet so so the caliphate was succession to the prophet muhammad and what it meant in practical terms is that it was to claim the loyalty and leadership of the world's muslims and and the caliphate endured as an institution for nearly um 1400 years um and obviously it was never sort of uh, un uninterrupted so the caliphate passed from uh, dynasty to dynasty and it, yeah. it was eventually with the Ottoman often it was contested so yeah, different people wanted to be caliph but it was with the Ottoman Empire for um, hundreds of years and the Ottoman Empire was so powerful uh, that sort of no one really uh, could have any significant claim to the caliphate while the Ottoman caliphate was still around and yeah. as Ottoman power waned and declined it became more and more important for the Ottomans to actually stress their role as um, uh, the caliphate because they wanted to sort of bolster legitimacy. Uh, so when the Ottomans lost a lot of uh, territory that was non-Muslim in the 19th century, suddenly their empire for the first time became sort of much more Muslim in its population. And so it was convenient for the Ottomans to then start really stressing um, the Islamic element of uh, the caliphate. And Sultan um, Abdul Hamid uh, II in the late 19th century he promoted a, a policy of basically trying to uh, project his uh, caliphal duties to Muslims that weren't in the Ottoman Empire and that were elsewhere like India. And the caliphate became very important to lots of Muslims elsewhere um, because they were all under European colonial rule. So mm. Muslims in India didn't really care too much about the Ottomans while they had their own powerful Muslim rulers um, in the uh, 18th century when this started to change you had uh, people fighting the British like Tipu Sultan they asked the Ottomans for help uh, the Ottomans mm. didn't give Tipu Sultan any help but then after 1857 when the last Mughal emperor um, was deposed suddenly the Muslims of India were just under British control and it was wow. then that they started to look somewhere else they they started to look at the the caliph in Istanbul and this was obviously very disturbing for the British because it was they saw it as a, a, a threat of disloyalty. I, I just love how the, the paradox here that liberalism, political liberalism, you know, I think of J.S. Mill, the great English uh, philosopher of the 19th century, his book on liberty, great book, you know, stressing freedom, individual liberty and so on. And this is very much, one could argue, for home consumption, for English people, mainly males, of course, white males, um, to uh, you know a, a rejoice in this ideology and express their individualism. But when it came to Britain abroad, external Britain uh, in the empire, then individualism, freedom, of course, was not tolerated. Well, I suppose it was as long as it didn't wasn't perceived to threaten uh, the interests of Britain back in in England. So it was a very conditional. Uh, freedom, which wasn't really expressed in J.S. Mill's work at all. That wasn't an issue. You, you're perfectly free as long as you don't threaten the government in Whitehall. Whoever said that, you know, it was freedom. So it's kind of freedom within the UK or England, rather, but outside 
wasn't really the case. And they, as you say, they locked people up if they were perceived just perceived to be a threat to Britain's commercial or military interests in all parts of the globe, where nothing to do with Britain, really. Yes, exactly. You're that's completely correct. And what they demanded, obviously, was a loyalty to the empire. And so, mm -hmm. uh, if uh, there were loads of Muslims saying, actually, we uh, we really like that Ottoman caliph over there in Istanbul, uh, that wasn't too um, good for the British. And of course, uh, we might note that the Kemalists uh, in the Republic of Turkey, uh, there was a reason they had to abolish the caliphate, which was that that was sort of a, a threat to their government um, authority as yes. well, uh, to have a sort of another kind of leader that was a sort of a relic of uh, the Ottoman past. I mean, they, they didn't want that and that was why they abolished the caliphate and they were actually extremely disturbed by the union with Hyderabad so after the marriage um, between uh, Princess Durushavar and uh, Azam Jah the Turkish embassy in London sort of kicked up a fuss and complained they called it you know the, the caliphal plot so, so they understood that there was something going on there to do with the Ottomans that they really didn't they didn't want the old Ottoman past sort of rearing its head Mm, yeah, fascinating stuff. So, I mean, just coming back to today um, in Turkey, in Istanbul, you have a country, I mean, having been there briefly only a couple of times, very, very nationalistic. Um, you know, you've got pictures of Kamal, statues of Kamal, you name it, all over the place. And it's completely forbidden, of course, to criticize or in any way revile or let alone mock uh, Ataturk uh, in any way whatsoever. But nevertheless, you have President Ergodum, who is an interesting figure, uh, election coming up is it this year now in June, July or something, uh, election in, in Turkey, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, which is like really crucial because if he loses, I'm not saying he will, but, you know, the forces of uh, secularism uh, who are there in the opposition, of course, might, well, I've been told this anyway, uh, you know, if they, if they came to power, a lot of his um, pro-Islamic reforms uh, might well disappear from the scene. Um, but within, I, I don't know how well versed you are in Turkish politics. Uh, um, there are the Ottoman loyalists. I, I met some of them in Istanbul still, yeah, and some of them are young people, of course. Um, but is the idea of the caliphate alive still there? I'm talking about in Anatolia itself, or is that now gone elsewhere in the world where you have, um, you know, the famous got political party at Hizbutaria, and you mentioned the movement in India and so on. Is it now kind of a more global phenomenon? Well, that's that's a very interesting point. I think um, it doesn't have really any political significance uh, in Turkey. Um, mm. President Erdogan is not uh, trying to uh, revive the Ottoman Empire. I think a while ago, when uh, there was sort of uh, there was a Turkish newspaper that sort of suggested bringing back the caliphate, and the Turkish government, Erdogan's government, very quickly came out and said, uh, you know, this is ridiculous, this is not what we want to do, we support the republic. So it's not actually significant in that sense. Uh, but what is true is that the, the idea of the caliphate um, is still very sort of uh, dear to lots of Muslims around mm -hmm. the world. Um, although what, what the caliphate would mean uh, differs very much. And I'm thinking here of um, uh, uh, Dr. Ovamir Anjum's um, uh, essay, Who Wants the Caliphate? And I know you've uh, interviewed him. Uh, He's a superb scholar and some fascinating, He's doing extraordinary work, actually, in very innovative and creative ways, rather than just rehashing old slogans. He's looking at it in a very nuanced way, uh, very mm. impressive. I, I think what he articulates very well is that is that the caliphate, the desire for the for the caliphate is not really about some sort of um, uh, mega super state 
totalitarian state or something. Mm. It's more, it's about um, Muslim sovereignty and, and uh, mm. the the famous uh, Indian Muslim poet philosopher, uh, Sir Muhammad Iqbal, uh, you know, he believed that uh, the Indian Muslims and Muslims in general would only be free when they could, they could uh, express themselves yeah. using their own language, using in their own terms and not looking at themselves through the lens of sort of uh, other civilizations that were being imposed onto them. And so I mean, that's never we, really... Yeah, sorry, we put, I just want to emphasize how important what you just said is, because we saw that recently with the World Cup in Qatar, where this tiny little state, uh, in terms of its volume, I mean, uh, geographically, came under huge pressure from the West, from politicians and Britain, the United States, Germany, the German football team, of course, made their protest. Um, uh, to to change their the society, their Islamic understanding of certain issues, which we won't go into. Um, so you can see how vulnerable uh, individual Muslim countries are to the hegemony, the pressure, uh, the what might call it neo-colonialism even uh, from the West. And so this this talk of the caliphate then would be a kind of a natural reaction, saying we need a shield, we need a defensive, we need some kind of ummah wide identity solidarity to protect them from these external pressures to change them, their religion, their faith, their, their beliefs, which are not uh, in accord with what's going on in Washington at any given moment, which of course constantly changes in America, you know, the latest fashions in whatever it is. And then they are made mandatory for the rest of the planet. Uh, controversially though, anyway, that would be my take. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And obviously the revival of the caliphate is not sort of some imminent uh, prospect, um, clearly. Uh, but uh, what I would say is that the idea of uh, Muslim uh, solidarity and uh, affinity between Muslims worldwide is an idea that is very much alive and it, it shapes politics uh, in many ways. And, um, I don't think we can expect it to go away. No, I don't see that happening. Um, I, I think just finally, from the religious perspective, it's the more the more Islamic perspective, if one can put it that way. Uh, uh, there are hadiths, are there not, which talk about this? These are sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, upon him be peace, uh, where he talks about precisely the you know the caliph, the successors to the Prophet. Um, and you know, without re rehashing the hadith, maybe I should have written it down. I could re rehearse it, but. Um, it was prophesied because Muhammad was a prophet, of course. It was predicted that um, the caliphate would come to an end at some point in history, and then for a time <coughs> without a caliph, and then it would return. So I've heard Muslims say to me on the basis of this that they have the promise of God that the caliph will return, the caliphate will return one day. I'm not saying it would be in our lifetimes or who it would be or whatever, but nevertheless, you know. It gives a sense that we don't have to be too anxious uh, or worried about, oh, we've got to do something. You know, we, yes, we have maybe, maybe people have to do something, but there is, is ultimately the God's initiative. It's God's plan. It is God's doing rather than a kind of more Marxist activist thing. We've got to create utopia on Earth, a communist society. We must do this and form, you know, these ages. It, it will ultimately happen. Uh, uh, but I'm not saying, therefore, that Muslims should be passive, but there is a sense of eschatological inevitability about it, if I can put it that way. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, th I think I, I definitely agree. I think that's correct. And obviously, uh, it was cataclysmic, uh, mm -hmm. the abolition of the Khilafah. Um, 
sort of for all the reasons that you mentioned, especially because it was sort of it was a scholarly consensus really that the the caliphate was um, absolutely important and that you needed a caliphate. Yeah. Um, and so that's why it was so. But but the, at the time that it was abolished, what was sort of relevant to everyone was the fact that uh, this was a problem with Muslims not having any power in the world and being sort of totally under colonial yeah. rule at that time. So yeah. almost uh, completely under colonial rule. Um, yeah. And that Muslims had to sort of regain their own sort of independence and their sovereignty um, and their, their ability to be Muslim uh, sort of um, on their own terms and, and not sort of uh, according to what various colonial powers, whether it be the British Empire or the French, uh, wanted. Um, and I think that that idea that to, to be Muslim on, on our own terms, yes, uh, that's still... I like, I, like what you've, I like what you've just said. I like how you phrased it, Muslim on our own terms. It's yeah. not, you can be Muslim now, obviously in Qatar or Egypt or whatever, but to, to actually be, uh, to be Muslim on our own terms, free of foreign, external, economic, military, hegemonic influence, uh, or at least to have it sufficiently tilted in a Muslim direction, so there is real sovereignty, not just nominal sovereignty, is is a fun, is an amazing aspiration and a very natural understanding. Non-Muslims should be able to understand that it's not just a Muslim logic. It's you know it, it's uh, there is a, an understandable uh, raison d'etre in that. I would argue. Yeah, so it's not it's not about some sort of a fanaticism or, as you say, mm. utopianism. It's not it's not that at all. It's mm. just I, I think it's it's something that's uh, eminently reasonable. Uh, that's yeah. Quite, yeah, it does strike one as being. I mean, to put it in more a different language, self determination is eminently reasonable. It's not uh, <laughs> fanatical um, at all. Uh, and particularly when you have the theological domain, you have the eschatological promise of God in these hadith, which speak of it returning. So it's, um, uh, you know, my perspective, my view is, you know, w w will I be around to see it? You know, that'd be interesting. But um, um, yeah. but it's. It, but you're right. Well, so another point you just made very briefly, I thought was really interesting. You talked about the the normativity of this concept the caliphate and what i can see you know my own limited research is that you're absolutely right i mean every school of thought every madhab every this is ijma big time throughout history the history of islam uh you know all the big names of it al-ghazali ibn Tia, you you name it they all agreed you need an imam or another name for the caliph a, a ruler a leader etc uh to unify the muslims uh, and not just religious reasons but to collect zakat and to implement this and to have that and um it, it it's just normative islam in other words it's not really up for private opinion it, it, this is this is islam it, it's a, a facet of it anyway yeah i think that's completely correct yeah okay well thank you uh imran uh Mullah, for an absolutely fascinating uh story uh about prince uh Mukharan jar um who died in istanbul at the age of 89 on the 14th of January, I mean, literally just over a week ago. And, uh, uh, and as, you, as you rightly say, few people knew that he was nominated caliph by the last Ottoman caliph. I mean, it's extraordinary, you know, to think that he was alive. I didn't know he, he existed, uh, unfortunately, until I read your article, about which your article can be read on middleeasteye.net. Uh, I'll link to it in the description below. Um, there's some photographs uh, of him, paintings uh, of him, and other significant people associated with his life. Very interesting read. Uh, I don't want to embarrass you, Imran, but you are a very good writer, 
um, uh, you're not boring, <laughs> which is a possibility with writers, uh, academic writers, I mean, are not always stimulating, even though they might be accurate and informative, but no, you're able to communicate actual content in an interesting way. And that's um, a talent uh, indeed, which I'm sure we can all be grateful for. So much appreciated, Imran. And um, well, perhaps we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Um, Thank until you next very time. much for having me. Thank you. Pleasure. Anytime. Until next.